Sound Design. I'm here to make you sound as good as possible outside. So if you just tickle the red and tickle the red and we stay there, we're good. And they're usually really happy. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by a jack of all trades except lighting. You can find him in corporate ballrooms, dirt festivals, touring metal, country, and hip hop, technical lead at Void Acoustics, Nathan Short. Nathan, welcome to Sound Design Live. Hey, glad to be here. So, Nathan, I definitely want to talk to you about how to set up a sound system for a DJ without blowing things up, breaking anything, hurting my equipment. But before I do that, I would love to know what kind of stuff you keep, you use for reference tracks. So once you get a sound system set up and you want to kind of get familiar with it, what's what's maybe one of the first things you play through it? So as I'm traveling and I travel a lot, I'm constantly searching out for new music, whether it be DJ or anything else. This comes from years of DJing in the, in the past. You know, I DJed in Chicago for probably 10 years, sports bars, nightclubs, all over. It was how I supplemented my income on the weekends, you know, around regular jobs and, and installs and other things. I'd always I'd always keep a couple of DJ gigs over the weekend because, well, number one, if you work at a bar, you don't have to pay for drinks. And so that's how we made it through our 20s without spending all of our money on booze. You know, we always kept a couple of bar, there's jobs in bars where that was DJing and stuff. And, I've always had an extensive, large music collection. I mean, even, you know, 2005, 2004, when people were still trying to figure out how to share iPods and stuff, you know, and rip music from each other, I always had, you know, nearly a terabyte of music, constantly searching for the new cool stuff to play during my gigs, Mm -hmm. and then constantly looking for archives of really cool old stuff because I not only did, you know, top 40 and and other stuff, but I had a unique thing in Chicago because I came from Missouri. And up here, everyone was always trying to do top 40, top 40. And I was like, well, while that's fun, I kind of want to bring the kind of party we used to do in Missouri, which was more like a a frat party. So even in the early (laughs) 2000s, we'd be doing hip hop and then rock and roll and then Southern rock. And I was like, you know, I'd be looking around these bars and I'm like, well, there's a lot of people here that obviously went to Iowa or Nebraska or somewhere else that just happened to live in Chicago now. I'm like, I think there's room for the good old Midwestern college frat party here. (laughs) And so we'd be throwing down ACDC in the middle of a hip hop set and people would be going wild or then, you know, Sweet Home Alabama just for a sing along. And so even in my travels now, I keep folders and I, I, I use Spotify a lot. And then not SoundHound, but, you know, there's the apps that you sit there and you're at a bar or you're somewhere like, oh, I wonder what that is. And, you know, SoundHound, oh, cool. And I'll throw that in Spotify playlist to review for later. So I've always got two or three revolving playlists for one is for corporate trade shows. Then I have one that's more for the the EDM nightclub people. I actually have like when I'm in Asia, I do a lot of traveling in Asia. I have a, a Chinese market. EDM because what they prefer is completely unique. Oh, tell me about that. Yeah. So I found out on one of my last trips, I was playing stuff that I like and this and that, and they were getting really weirded out because the bass, the bass they felt was too violent. And that was the word I was getting. Uh And what, what I had to figure out to tailor to the, the Asian market needs at these super clubs over there 
was that they don't like the transient explosiveness that happens at like 65 and 85 when there's high impact, lots of air moving. They want things more a little over-compressed and over-rounded to sound more like a car audio sub, a little more polite, a little more canned. So for them, you kind of need to over-compress and round it a little bit. That's kind of why they prefer maybe the sound of like a DNB B2 manifold, uh, you know, bandpass sub. It's very round. It's very, this is what you're getting. This is what we're always doing. And they like that polite repetitiveness. Okay. You do things that scare them too much, and they're like, whoa, whoa, that's aggressive. You're wired, whoa. So we kind of had to tailor a little bit to what they wanted, but a little bit, you know, what what we do. Uh, because uh, as as Void Acoustics and some of the subs I love, we, we do bring a, a very dynamic bass sound. So to segue back to, uh, I, I always have a number of Spotify playlists where I'm trying things out. And I like to surprise people with new songs. So whether it be, you know, something from like Defected Records or Dirty Bird Records, those are two labels that if you want to just throw uh, a pin at the dartboard, you know, they have stuff that just sounds so good because of where it's mastered. So I I know for uh, for a fact where the stuff for Dirty Bird gets mastered. It's a place in London. They have a custom set of old tannoys. I know the gear goes through. And every time you listen to it, you're just like, "Mm, it just sounds so rich and so full (laughs) and so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much anything that Claude Von Stroke, Justin Martin, Christian Martin are putting out, you can throw up as a reference for, you know, DJ stuff. Okay, well, let's keep going. So I just want to check because I've heard stories about people basically funding themselves through college with DJ gigs. But does that really work? So you were able to just like basically do a gig a weekend and then that was enough money to like pay for college and your life and everything? No. So my college story is actually a really funny and crazy one. <laughs> I went my freshman year and I played soccer in, in uh, Southern Illinois at Greenville. Oh, wow. And I went on pretty much a full ride for Division Three soccer. And I got into what they called was a CCM, Contemporary Christian Music degree, wow. uh, which was really tailored toward the Christian music market. What, what I found out when I got there is that I do not operate well in a small town of a thousand people. Okay. That's, a, that's a dry <laughs> county. Oh, wow. <laughs> I got into lots of trouble at that school. And I eventually got kicked out at the end. Oh, wow. I went back to Missouri, took some night courses, and then uh, met a girl who was moving to Chicago and found out they had a great studio program and live program, went up and interviewed there, and then uh, made my way to Chicago and went to Columbia College. I had some amazing, amazing mentors. You know, some of them work for Dan Lee now, like Jack Alexander and some of his other, Jim Nutt was an amazing live teacher. And I went there for a year, but while before I got there, my, my student loans had defaulted within one week. And I was like, well, I've been, the paperwork was supposed to be done. They're like, well, she no longer works here. This is 2001. And they just left her, her phone open, but no one took over her, her case schedule. So they let me go the first semester. They let me go the second, second semester without financial aid. And then they made me stop going. But before they made me stop going, one of my friends who worked there found out about a teacher's aid position. And so I signed up and started working as a teacher's aide before they knew I wasn't a student. And I did that for the next three years. Okay. <laughs> and so I'd sit in and audit any classes I wanted. I worked for the school. I worked at graduations. 
And I kind of scammed my way through the rest of my education by working for the school and they didn't know I was a student. That's amazing. (laughs) I did what I have to do, you know, to to get by. Sure. And they actually, that actually came up about two years ago. I went in to interview. They wanted me to come back and teach. And when I went in there, the new dean was like, you're 17 credit hours away from a degree. (laughs) And my mentor looked at me and he goes, you asshole. And I was like, (laughs) Sorry, man. <laughs> I was like, I did what I had to do. Yeah, I never graduated. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. And he said, yeah, keep me on track. <laughs> so I know your your career has taken, you know, all these twists and turns. And I'm just wondering if looking back, you could take us to a point in your life when you felt like maybe you took a hard left turn or something really had to change for you. And so... I'm wondering if you could tell us about that and what did what did you decide to do? And and just to give you a little bit more information, I have found that with most people, there's some point in their lives when they're like, okay, I'm not going to be a you know building manager anymore, and I'm going to stop doing this all this work and just focus on audio. And that may not have been what maybe you went the other direction, but can you think of something like that in your life when you made a decision to really do more of the work that you really love? I actually have a very uh, defining moment that comes out, and this is where I'll make a, a tiny statement. Also, I am uh, I'm a very spiritual person. I, I personally do believe in God and Jesus. I do not believe in the modern church or dogma. And a couple of years ago, I was digging through a thing that right before I moved to Chicago, I had uh, written down some prayers. And I had written a note kind of to myself and God while, while, while searching these things out. I was in a really dark place in my life, was not happy. And the, the note said, God, please help me find a job in a place where I can be as happy as I am when I'm helping friends install car audio or running sound for their bands. I don't know how to do it. And I was like, I'm going to put that out there. And I found this note, and whether you want to call that you know, self-reflection or a prayer, I wrote this down while in a, in a time of turmoil, and I found it years later. And I was like, wow. I, I, at that time... I didn't know, because I came from a smaller town in Missouri, that the possibility of a career in audio was even a thing. Sure. I, worked in, uh, I worked in warehouses, and then on the, the side, I would help friends do recordings every now and then. I'd help run sound for their bands on weekends or at a biker rally. That was the extent of I knew. I, like, there was also you know, the, the venue in town. But I thought that was so far beyond me, that was, that was a level to me. Now looking at it, it's a roadhouse. You know? And I was like, <laughs> but those guys, to yeah. me, were so... They're they're living it, man. They were so in it. I didn't think I ever had the chops to do that. I was just a guy who, who happened to be able to mix well and had good hearing. And that could install help my friends install car audio or hook up their home stereo. You know, I was smart enough to do all that. And, you know, then looking at that in hindsight, I was like, Oh wow, I, I knew what I was looking for. I didn't know how to get there and I didn't have anyone to tell me how to get there. I had to figure that out. And so that was moving to Chicago, going to school, and then running into just an amazing amount of talent at that that year the kids that were going through the program now all of those guys now are stage managers for a lot of the big festivals around huge names that i went to school with and we all banded together and said well we're going to kick all these old fuddy duddies out we're going to keep <laughs> each other we're going to keep pulling each other up and so every time one of us got a new job we'd sneak in two or three of our friends and then he'd get up somewhere and he'd sneak us along and now <laughs> We're talking about stage managers for Lollapalooza, you know, for some of the main stages, people that tour the world with, I mean, major acts. My old roommate is Chance the Rappers, you know, front of house guy. They tour the world. 
a lot of our guys then went into huge giant corporate and we've always we always banded together in a, in a matter of 10 years we took over a large portion of the industry in chicago with our own kind of underground mafia you know we, <laughs> we awesome. brought in people yeah. we trusted and we excluded people that that we couldn't trust and it was really we had a really good run for a good number of years and now I could pick up the phone and, you know, I've got, I've got friends that work for every major sound company in the world right now wow. that are okay. close friends. I feel like it's important that I know you now before it was, <laughs> it was just for fun, but now it's for business. <laughs> so, so what was the decision? So you, you've discovered this prayer slash reflection you'd written down at some point, and then you decided what I'm going to move to Chicago. And do this or figure well, it out? this was this was finding that uh, years later. Uh, okay. So I had had that search out there, and then Chicago kind of fell into my lap. Whether that was an answer for prayer, but I remember when this girl that I met told me that she was leaving and going up to school in Chicago, and I was like almost devastated. We had this summer thing going on, and I really did love her. And all of a sudden, for a week, everywhere I turned, the newspaper, Chicago, the TV, Chicago, a commercial on the radio, Chicago. And I'm telling you, I heard it five times a day for like two weeks in a row. And I went, okay, okay I need to go check Divine this out. The universe, sure. the universe is telling me this is the, this is the thing to do. And in hindsight, it was, it was an answer to either that, that great searching or that prayer or that reflection. All right. It was definitely written in the stars that I need to be in Chicago. And then I, I took the springboard from there and hustled. So Nathan, you have set up a lot of sound systems in your day, and you've helped a lot of people set up sound systems. So I'm curious, what are some of the mistakes you see people making over and over again? Maybe you could share with us one or two of the most common mistakes you see people making who are new to setting up sound systems for DJs. Yeah, that becomes a whole different thing now. Back in the day, it used to be underpowered amps and gains on the amplifiers not set full open. People using gain on an amplifer as a, as a volume knob and a volume knob. You're right. Sorry, what, what Nowadays, did you say they use it as what? I was saying gain structure, oh, okay. but yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the wrong point of gain structure is you know where my brain goes. And nowadays, it's less because you see so many more people using powered speakers. So it's now now there's so much less thought put into it for the amateur. So you have you have two groups. You're going to have the amateur. You're going to have the mid level, and you're going to have the extreme high level. The mid-level, let's say you're going to see DJs at, at your average roadhouse or your average medium festival. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do with the, with the limitations. But And then on, on the big side, we, we've talked about this before, people using compressors and limiters wrong and, and the gain stage between the DJ and the system. And that's pretty much the, the thing I would focus on is it just comes back down to basic gain structure and people not understanding that you can set up a DJ to help you succeed instead of just leaving him and guessing and going, well, I don't know where the gain is on my knob <laughs> because you never took the five minutes to go up to his mixer, even plug your phone in or a file from a thumb drive, set a high level and go back to your desk and look. Now, if you take the extra five minutes and do this and understand, okay, well, when he turns up there and there, my console is here. Cool. Instead, what, what you'll see a lot of guys doing, like, well, well send me a signal. Where are you going to play? Well, come on, man. That's like, that, that's like 20 dB of, of guesswork right there. Uh -huh. And then you're hoping he doesn't turn up later. It's the same as like what we, you know, we call that marking. And this is when, if you've ever run sound for horn bands, trumpet players and trombone players are notorious when you say, hey, 
all right, let's get those monitors set. Let's get a level set. Play me something. And they're like, you're like, that's nice. But I know as soon as I turn my head, you're about to blow my brains across the side of the room. Now that you're like, give me a show level. I need a show level for you. And they're like, you're like, listen, I'm going to give you all the monitors I can, but I need you to blow that thing. Like you've been warmed up for 20 minutes. And then maybe they'll give you a loud note, but you, it's still never that first note. They're going to come out of the gate with when they're just trying to go. (laughs) <laughs> they're going to bury that diaphragm into the back of the magnet, you know? So we, we call that marking and be, we, you can't go up and tell a horn player to do it, but you can walk up to a DJ rig, put your own CD in, plug your phone in, put a thumb drive in, play a file, turn the gain up nice and spicy as if you would examine a show level, tickle the red on the end, tickle the red on the out and go, yep, someone's going to come up here eventually tonight with the too few mini beers in them. And they're going to play this loud anyway. So I might as well do it now and find that reference. So I know how loud I can get before the end of the night. And so most of the times you'll find people don't do this. And then when they start to get scared, they throw a compressor on it. Oh, I better compress this. I don't know what he's going to do. Because they have no reference. So that's how you use a compressor wrong is by not setting up the gain properly ahead of time and just trying to rely too much on the compressor to save you. That's right. Smushy, smushy, smushy. Okay, I'm safe now. And what have you done? You've ruined the dynamics. You've made it sound even worse. You know, that because I, we, we know we know two things. They're either going to come in with really amazing files because they're super pro, or they're going to come in with garbage. So we can't do something to make it worse, right? <laughs> All we can do is try and do things to make it better. And you'll see it on like, especially when guys would be running hip hop and I'd be in Chicago. I'd come in and they're just squishy, squishy, squishy. I'm like, why are you compressing and killing this track? He's like, because it sounds like crap. You know, a friend, like, well, hold on, try this. Instead of using that as good, this is where it started. I started to get into using compressors as quick release limiters. I'd be like, like it, it started with some of those hip hop DJs who would just be absolute pure red. They just don't care. They're there to be loud and do one thing for the MC and everyone else damned because they've got one job and that's to the MC. Mm-hmm. You may fire them today. He doesn't know. Sure. So the, it's the, it's down to that that loyalty thing in hip hop. They don't care about you. They don't care about anything else. Track is loud. I'm listening to my MC. Sound man, nice to know you, but you are not my boss right. today. This guy up here with the mic is. And you have to understand that dynamic. So I'd come in, I see my friends just compressing the crap out of this. I was like, yeah, we already know his track's going to be squishy and weird. Or he's got a dumb controller. And so we started doing, I started doing quick attack, quick, quick release just to catch the big nasty transients. You know, we're talking about uh, eight attack, 16 release. And then we'd only have it coming into where I'm, I'm trying to catch three or six dB. That's it. Anything else, I need to go upstream and put a pad in front of my mic pre or line in, or I need to put a DI to knock the signal down. This topic is so important. And it's interesting, I think, that both you and Dave Ratt discussed some methods at this year's Live Sound Summit for what you can do technically to have a really great relationship with the artist. And so you talk about how you can set up your DJ rig so that basically when the DJ walks up, they're expecting some sort of limitations from you. So they're already kind of have an adversarial relationship where they're like, ah, Nathan's coming up here. He's going to tell me to turn it down. He's going to tell me all things I can't do. And so then when you come up and you say, Hey, how's it going? And they say, Hey, can like, where can I set these knobs? And you're like, Hey, you can turn it all the way up. Then it like, they're amazed because no, they're so used to yeah. people telling them all the things they can't what do. I, so what I like to do ahead. is when I walk up and I say, Hey, just to let you know, here's how it is. 
And I was like, if we keep most of our knobs here at noon and gain, and you can tickle one red on the input, you can tickle one red on the output. And until then, you've got it all. That's where I start to limit. And they go, oh, wow, someone's being honest with me. I'm like, I'm not going to limit you until it's there. And that's just for the system. You've got the whole system until then. And I'm like, and for your booth monitor, go ahead and turn it all the way up. That's all you. You have complete control. If you need more, I'll try and find it, but you should be surprised. And usually they go, I can turn the knob all the way up. (laughs) Go ahead, man. You know, and it's just set for absolute Armageddon. And they're they're, they're usually turn halfway up and go, oh, oh, oh." (laughs) and you're like, there you go. You know? (laughs) So so, And if you tell them, yeah, you just tell them the rules. And I'd be like, listen, you've got it all, but here's where the limit sets in. And I'm here to make you sound as good as possible outside. So if you just tickle the red and tickle the red and we stay there, we're good. And they're usually really happy, you know. Okay, great. Yeah. You get those you get those things that you discover work well with people and then you discover that you can kind of just like repeat them in the right way and like people get it, you know? So this leads me to the next question from, okay, so your presentation at Live Sound Summit was called Steps to Success with Modern DJ Reinforcement. And one of the things you talked about is a question I've always had, why are DJ monitor rigs so big and loud? And and the the two reasons I remember are actually really straightforward. But yeah, would you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so what you'll find is that, you know, DJs DJ not just to have a performance they're not prima donnas. These are people who love music, who grew up in the scene, who love the scene. And, you know, as, as one of our forums is aptly titled that we troll around in called Speaker Freakers. These are people who literally want to hug the speakers while dancing, having their experience. And DJs come from that world. And so when they play a small club, the small club, you're in that system. You don't need as big of monitors because that bass is in the room. You're getting pounded from all sides when it's a good club. The booth is more near the crowd. So let's remove ourselves now and go to the bigger stage. You've now removed the person from the crowd. You can't reach out and touch your crowd. So how do you get that feeling back? So what what started to happen in around 2004, 2005, is Tiesto started to come through with his uh, DVDOS grade. Two triple 15s and then three or four DVDOS. What, what this did is it put a lot of punchy bass on, on the ground next to your feet. And then it coupled all this massive low mids and high frequencies that kept them low. So you didn't have giant stacks screaming some lines left and right. You had everything coming from, from low up and in. And because he was such a tall guy, and we're talking he's you know 6'2", I believe, he always had problems with getting monitors up high enough to get in his ears. So if we do the line array curve from down low, it's going to hit him no matter what. Then a short DJ comes in. Well, guess what? It's going to hit the short DJ too. They didn't have to start reinventing the wheel just for him to come on. Changeovers got less. And then the video and lighting guys realized, oh, look, there's no fat stacks in the way of my awesome video and lighting show. And so this became the de facto standard. And people were like, why do you need all that horsepower? That's not the way line array works. Well, the VDOS... You know, the DOS waveguide is not a traditional line array element. It is it is a, a wedge shape in a slot. It does different things. It acts more like a hi-fi device in my mind. Other people say, well, there are your mids and your low mids aren't going to couple. Well, guess what? This serves a purpose, and it actually sounds good when you tune it. Um, I'm worried about horsepower. And the reason these guys want that horsepower is because now you've removed them from the crowd 
and they need to get that feeling back, that closest connectivity. So the smart guys put in their 30 NR reduction, you know, uh, hearing protection devices, and they crank it. And they crank it because they want the low-mid viscosity to be modulating their chest. They want those sub-lows to be blowing their pant legs around. <laughs> they want to have the feeling of being in the crowd and being assaulted by the PA while they're removed from their crowd in the PA. And so it's all about what we call body feel. They do it to get their body in the game, to get loosened up, to feel part of the music. And then they put in, if they're smart, and most of the guys that I work with are super smart and are very aware because they're studio cats also, that, yep, the hearing protection goes in because I don't need all that power in the high mids. I want all that power in the low mids, lows, to shake my body and get my brain and endorphins in the same space as my crowd is. Okay, so Nathan, one of my favorite quotes from your presentation and from the entire Live Sound Summit, I wrote it down and I actually quoted it later during my presentation at the end of the summit, is this. You said, when the sound is right and there's no distortion, people stay for two more drinks and after two years, you've paid for that sound system. And I just love that you, I think you said you came up, you figured this out with someone else, but you just kind of have figured out the dollars to dB average for installing sound systems and, and what that can do for your business and also connecting it with, you know, what your clients or customers want, which is oftentimes sell more alcohol, sell more food, sell more tickets. And so you're connecting sound quality with their business success. And so the follow-up I wanted to ask you about this idea is what does right mean to you and to your customers? What are the most important details that you feel like you need to get right to help your clients with their end goal, whatever that is, selling alcohol, food, tickets, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So this came about as uh, hanging out at a super trendy nightclub in Chicago where my friends would work. And one of my friends, there were a couple, was a bartender. And the other friend, she was a cocktail and cocktail server for uh, some of the high dollar bottle service stuff. We're talking, you know, back in the late, mid 2000s, these are people who would take home six grand a night. We're talking that kind of nightclub, super high end, super high volume, really great. At the time, it had a function one sound system in it, which was supposed to be top of the line. And what I noticed about this particular venue is there were mains that were pointed right at the bar. And there were some behind the bar pointed right at your point of sale. And so you'd be going to try and order a drink and you're just absolutely screaming at the bartender to try and get a drink. And then my buddy would complain about, and I, you know, so this, this thing started slowly sitting in. I'm like, well, you don't need to put speakers there because that's where we're taking in revenue. He was complaining about his ears and I got him some special earplugs. And then all the bartenders started wearing the, the, these etymotic uh, research you know, because they're cheap, they go in and they just lower everything in a hi-fi way. And you can actually, in a loud, nasty bar, hear people talking easier because it cuts down the extraneous bouncing around you know, noise. And I got in hooked on that and I started thinking about, you know, like, I'm like, you know, someday I'm going to be designing the big clubs and this and that, and this is not a mistake I'm going to make. I'm not going to point super amounts of high mids at the bar where the money is exchanging, where the commerce is taking place. They're not charging at the door for these large nightclubs. They're making their money on booze. So if I don't help the bar sell booze, they're not going to buy speakers and lights, which is where I make my money. 
you know, or the new fancy DJ gear. This has, I have to make the owner money and then the owner will be happy and spend money with me, you know? So I started looking at the mistakes that were being made. And then I started researching how did the classic discos do it? How did Studio 54 and Zanzibar and all these amazing places you heard of in New York, you know, how can we find the, the old materials on how their systems were laid out, where they did and did not put delays, where they did and did not put fill speakers, what were their methods? These are the guys that invented it. And I started looking about how, how the high power was on the dance floor. And sometimes they didn't do any peripheral delays at all. You want to dance, you go to the dance floor. You want to talk, you go to the bar. And so I started looking at every aspect of this. And then one of the cool things we got into over at Columbia College Chicago is, you know, as part of uh, the aesthetics of live sound, you know, we'd get into acoustics and psychoacoustics. There were, there were courses on that. And while I didn't get to take the courses, I did buy the book and I sat in and I talked to my friends who took the course. And I started studying as much as I could because, as we know, you go into a noisy, loud restaurant that doesn't have soundproofing anywhere and you're trying to talk to someone. It's a miserable experience. Loud, noisy restaurants are horrible. We want something calm. I want to chat nice with you. I don't want my voice to hurt at the end of the night. I don't just strain to listen to you. The human brain has powerful DSP. When we're in a noisy environment, that DSP engages to decipher what the person across from us is saying, to get those words across. It's trying to look at your lips moving and match that up with some sort of algorithm in our head that's filtering extraneous things out to get communication across. And so I started thinking about why were all these little things at the old discos so important and they don't follow them now. Why did they have little floating dance floors? And you'd read an article and it was important to the DJs that the guests dancing on a dance floor that floated and moved so their feet wouldn't hurt at the end of the night. You dance on concrete, your feet hurt. Okay, and I was like, why were they so concerned about this? Because they wanted people dancing for hours. I was like, okay, so they don't want their feet to hurt. That's causing pain. That's causing a negative hormones and stuff to be released in our body. Pain messages, cool. So we get that out. Well, let's do the same thing with the audio. And if we don't have harsh mid-range and everything's sweet and hi-fi and everything's balanced in the right way, well, people's brains aren't going to release stress chemicals. And then I started looking into studies about this. If you're in a noisy, nasty environment, your brain's releasing stress chemicals because it's engaged in DSP. It's doing work. If we eliminate the need for the brain to engage that and you're sitting there just talking normally and naturally in a comfortable way, your brain is only going to release endorphins from having a good time. If we then sell you alcohol and you have more endorphins and then you go dance and you have more endorphins, what we're doing is we're giving you an entire cornucopia of legal high. You are literally floating on cloud nine because we know about norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. And we want those things flooding out while you're having a good time. I want as much as I can keep your brain from engaging high level of thought any amount of stress or any amount of pain, then what we're left with is a natural high for everyone. And what that turns into is people are going to stay longer. They're going to dance longer. They're going to feel comfortable. They're not going to know exactly why, but they're going to go, you know what? Every time I go there, I have such a good time. And then their brain associates that Pavlovian response with, I like going there. I'm happy there. I'm not happy at this other club. I don't know why. It's nicer. They have a nicer sound system, something else. But every time I go here to my favorite place, I'm comfortable. I'm happy. People I'm with have a good time. I leave and my ears don't hurt. See, what we've done is we've given them 
a complete stress-free experience. And we did notice that the, the turnover that started happening is everyone would stay longer, dance longer, buy more drinks. And over the course of the year, our clients started making much more money. And we would then sit down and talk about this. Like, hey, we're not going to point speakers at your point of sale. I know you think speakers go over here. Guess what? They don't. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell you how to run your bar. Don't tell me how to run my staff. I'm going to help you make more money, you know? And uh, so we'd be like, we started doing very specific things. No speakers ever pointed at point of sale. If they are, they're going to be so low and so tailored, they're nearly invisible. You're not going to think they're on. The EQ curve is going to be for maximum local intelligibility between the person handing over the money and the person taking the money. And that's very important, you know, because we need to make our clients money, but we also need to put our best foot forward. And it just so happens it's the same thing. My best job is also going to make my client more money. So that's, that is that summed up as concisely as I can put it. <laughs> and so you have some of these specific things, but it sounds like you're very good at reading the room. And, and so it's hard to generalize because it's whatever you think the room needs and the client needs to, to get the job done and to get the results that they want. It's not like you have a template that you follow every time. No, and I'm sure that if I wanted to make some sort of complicated Excel spreadsheet, that could be done or as part of some larger SRM where other factor is taken in. But it's really about common sense. We're not going to put big base by the front door to annoy the neighbors. You know, we're not going to point speakers at our point of sale. There are, there are zones like the bathrooms. The bathrooms don't need to be blaring. These are common sense things that you walk into some place and you're just like, my God, who no one stepped in here and like, gone to take a pee in the middle of the night and realize <laughs> six and a half inch speaker on, on you know maximum overdrive like wow that's not comfortable let's let's fix these things it's the niceties it's, it's, it comes back to the aesthetics of the situation so well, Nathan, you've done so many cool things in your career so far. And, you know, besides getting kicked out of school, I would love if you would share with us maybe one of the most painful, biggest mistakes that you've made on the job in, in your own mind. Yeah. And then, you know, what happened, what happened afterwards, how you recovered? Yeah. So the, the I was I was thinking about that because you had uh, asked me to think about that. And I've been quite lucky to not have a lot of major, major mistakes in my career, but there is one <laughs> that really stands out. And I was in Japan and we were launching Incubus in Japan for Ultra Japan. This is the first time Ultra Music Festival went to Japan as they had started to branch around the world. And now Ultra, well, did before COVID, was in a number of Asian countries and would work its way around the world, even South America, back to Miami, Miami being the kickoff every year um, as one of the world's largest, you know, electronic music festivals. So we go over to do Ultra Japan with my incredibly, incredibly awesome Japanese counterparts. The, these guys are just the absolute most amazing bunch of guys. They're foodies. They're personable. They're they're like family. So we, we set up and we're doing everything all day. And there's a very very famous club outside of Tokyo with. And an insane, and I'm talking insane amount of loud. Speakers. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, they've been designed by Jim Thoth, and each of these red clusters had two TAD 15s, a TAD 10, and then a TAD 4 inch compression driver with a couple bullets. And the crown amps were set in them. And I think there's something like 38 of these 
in two concentric rings on truss that moved up and down. And then they had a uh, in-house VDOSC. And I think they had 10 elements aside of VDOSC and then a few weird sub configurations and a separate sort of thing. The in-house guys were not super happy that we then come in with our two, what looks like little compared to that room, stacks of incubus and a little center cluster of subs. So I've got my two triple 21s aside, two quad 15s and the incubus tops, which is four 12s, four mids and six four and a half. And we fire it up and they're pretty happy. And the, the guy on stage is like more and more and more. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. We got a little headroom, little headroom. And all of a sudden, all the high mids are gone. I'm looking around and we stop and we stop. And I'm out at front of house and I can already smell it. Oh, no. And I knew what had happened. So I, I run up and the guys are climbing all over the speakers and they're sniffing them. And I was like, guys, 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 the production people are watching. Come here. Stop. Stop. Let's go have a sidebar. And I, and I look and I said, what happened? What happened? What happened? I noticed the lights had dimmed while this had happened. And at that time, this was before everyone could afford PowerSoft, really. You know, the K-Series was, was good, but didn't sound as good yet as a lot of the other stuff. And over in Japan, their voltage runs at about 105. That's all they have. And so the guys had gotten custom-modified Chinese lab groupings made for their rig at the time. And they were very, very good. We know a lot of people use those Sandways and CRVs now, and they're incredibly well-made. At the time, these were some of the first really very well-made ones with a custom power supply to run at about 100 and 105 volts. And the guys are like, oh, yeah, we have brownouts here all the time. Oh, no. And I went, you what? <laughs> and we get that brownout during sound check, and it cooked every single high-mid and high-frequency device in a brand-new custom silver incubus. Oh, I didn't know that could happen. That's terrifying. Yes. Which is why we soon after this, we had moved over to a complete PowerSoft, you know, thing, simply because of the, the amount of precise limiting you could do. You know, before it was the wild, wild west. Well, what's your amp and what's your DSP? And we had a DSP, but not everyone wanted that. They wanted XTA, they wanted this. So a lot of my early work with Void was simply gaining consistency between rapidly different things. So I tell everyone we're taking a break. I go to the house guys and I said, and this is this is the point where the Japanese mindset is coming on, and I'm getting the looks of death from the house. <laughs> like, you need to leave. You need to take the sword out, cut yourself open, commit Harry Carry <laughs> right now, fall on the sword. And I'm being looked at like a piece of trash. And I said, could we please? Could I send out a matrix left and right into your house VDOS rig? No, I no no. I'm not asking for your entire rig. We'll use my subs, mids, and lows up to my twelves. I only want to use your high mids and highs. We have to have a solution. The show starts in a couple of hours. The guy said, okay. They, they drag this rack out to front of house. They stick two DBX-160s on my matrix. The guy cranks it down a little hard, and they have a guy sit there. And he sits there for the next 12 hours. He, he traded out with one guy. This is my babysitter of shame. <laughs> so I go back out. I dial in the delay real quick, and it turns out it takes six VDOS high mid elements to keep up with our incubus stacks. So that's where we rest at. Like, yep, just turn on six. I'll time align it to my to my stacks. We'll beat up on my base and uh, you know and, and mids. And we'll just use your high mids and highs. Well, it sounded fantastic. The the show went well. And because I was so ashamed of what had happened, I sat there and I only took like one pee break that whole night. I sat there and mixed for I think 12 hours. Okay. 
I was like, my hand will not leave. This will not have any more problems. This will be a perfect show. And that other stupid little kid sat next to me and was my babysitter <laughs> for the house ring. He would sit there and look at me every time I got loud. Every time his compressor started with, he'd be like, are you going to blow this up? Are you going to blow this up? I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it, man. And, and so I love so that he probably, hopefully he didn't speak English. So the two of you couldn't actually talk. You just had to look at each other. Yeah. It's, uh, this, you know, this is pretty much the, the, the what was happening. I think they asked me a number of times that night, uh, do you want to take a break? Do you want to go somewhere? You don't need to stand here and do this. You know, you're jet lagged. I said, no, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to make this right. And I, and I earned their respect okay. back by standing there for the next 12 hours and just solid on my face. Hey, I'm going to take a, a pee break real quick. I'll be back in five minutes. And I was back in five minutes. I was standing there. I didn't stop watching the stage and I just, I took my licks. I had to pay for all of that out of my own pocket. Oh because it was my mistake. And uh, I had gone to one of the owners at the time and he gave me this bill back. And I'm almost like, no, 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 no. I'm like, I, we understand retail and factory pricing. I'm like, I'm asking as a personal one-time favor. Can I get manufacturer pricing? Please pause because it's coming out of my own pocket. And then I shipped the stuff to the guys and with my apologies. And I said, and so they got an entire new set of diaphragms and mid devices okay. for their incubus. Right? And that's how I, I made that right. That's an amazing story. <laughs> and just to give people some context and, and also just for me to confirm, like you keep mentioning, you mentioned PowerSoft a few times in that story. And I think the reason is because PowerSoft amps have some very more advanced power tracking on the insides. So when the AC is coming in, it can really track and make sure that everything's okay and, and protect the amp, right? That and the output limiting. So the, the, the absolute rock solid voltage limiting on the output of those amplifiers. You know, you used to run the lab group, and, and here's what I'll say, the reason I moved away from lab group in, in my training experience is to favor PowerSoft. Um, I installed the first K10 in North America. We got the first one off the boat. That was not a demo piece. And I put it in a nightclub probably back in 2005 or six. You know, K10 DSP was brand new. We didn't know much about it. We're like, what do you mean we need to hook up 30 amp, 208, 240? It doesn't care. And my electrician was like, that's insane. Amps don't do that. And I'm like, this amp does it. I'm telling you, this is some NASA stuff. And then we, we put it on some old JBL SRXs at this club and just beat the ever-loving, beat them to within an inch of their life. And those drivers blew. I put in, at the time, some BNC TBX 100s, and it sounded even better, and we beat them up with that thing. But because I could dial in that voltage limit on the output of that thing, it was just a whole new world. And what we found out over time is this came from moving Martin audio boxes for a company. You'd have lab grouping on a set of these Martin audio subs. And at the end of the night, the driver doors were just so hot. And then we switched over to PowerSoft on a few of them. And at the end of the night, the driver doors would just be warm. And so I started doing some, some comparisons back and forth. And part of it was a function of the PowerSoft to deliver its transient voltage so quickly. And then I started looking to how the, the old lab group did their, their TD, you know. And to me, it was the fractions of a microsecond that the TD waveform took versus the absolute precision impulse of the power soft. And we're talking fractions of a microsecond that over the course of the evening led to 20 or 30 degrees at the voice coil long term. And every time I used power soft, I had just as much bass. It might not have been as warm or is hi-fi, but what we're actually taking that into is time smear. That's what our brain was like, mm, it's warm and fuzzy. No, it's smeary. And what we're talking, we're talking, they're both very good amps. I'm not talking down about any company. It's about 
how the driver is held for absolute microseconds at the top and bottom of the waveform that's being reproduced. PowerSoft is a little more precise, but people called it cold. Well, guess what? It had more power. I'm going to go for more power, and I'm going to make up for your lack of warmth with something in my pre-stage. Let's add a tube. Let's add something else. I'm going to want that power and that voltage delivery. And it seems that, you know, this, this comes back to that we want to protect our voice call from heat. Heat's the enemy. If we can deliver voltage while keeping the long-term heat down, the RMS heat, we're going to have less glue failure, less component failure, better transducer life. I'm going to lose my soft parts before I lose my coil. That's what we want. Yeah, that makes sense to so, me. Let's keep the art on the artist side and let's keep the sound system linear and keep the science on the science side. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's, and that's what we just came down to. And, it, you know, I would make those choices. I still love Lab Group and I love the way it sounds. But for me, long term in a sound system, if I want a system that's going to perform for 10 years, no problems, that's going to be power soft for me simply because it's it, we have less heat in the voice coil. And I'm sure someone's going to argue with me somewhere, but I, I will track it down to personal experience and the microseconds in the way that the lab group produces its waveform versus the absolute, almost clinical peak to peak that the PowerSoft does. It's those microseconds that, that lead to 20 or 30 degrees in heat. Yeah. Well, Nathan, I know you've got to take off soon because you've got a demo there in Houston, Texas, where you're doing an install. But let's knock out a couple of these fa- Facebook questions before you go. So Dave Gammon says, what's his favorite cut of meat? I am a New York strip guy. All right. Zach Chia says, ask him about the time he sliced his leg setting up Dirty Bird Camp out. <laughs> yeah, so this is a good story. Being a, being a large man who has spent many, many years on his feet doing production, you know, I'm getting to that point at, at 40 years old where I've got a few varicose veins on, on my lower calves. And we were out in the, the high desert outside of LA somewhere doing a dirty bird camp out. It is night three or something, and it has been absolute crusty dry there. We're in a dirt pit. Legs are all blotchy and skin's dry. And, you know, we're not showering like we should. We're at our dirt festival. It's the middle of the night, and I walk past a case, and uh, the case had a, a little snag on the metal that literally catches my varicose vein, uh, and just goes. I'm so sorry, the that tiniest. I <laughs> I'm telling you, it is the tiniest micromillimeter pinprick you've ever seen in your life. But because it's down near my ankle, this thing shoots blood like four feet, and just shoots blood straight out. And everyone's like, ah, screaming. I've got my hand over it, and I am, it is just live, I'm hemorrhaging live right there. And they take me away on a, on a thing. They wrap me up, and the lady's like, well, it's already scabbed over. Let me look at this. I'm like, don't touch it. She touches it, and it literally shoots a geyser of blood right <laughs> up. It's all over her, and she's like, I've never seen this before. I'm like, well, that's a varicose vein. There's plenty of videos online. This is what happens when you nick a varicose vein. Wrap it up. Let it heal. <laughs> yes, that was, a, that was a pretty funny one. Well, I'm sorry we have to end on that note. <laughs> no, that's awesome. <laughs> so, Nathan, <laughs> where's the best place for people to follow your work? As much as I can post on things, I do on Facebook. And um, just Nathan Short, you'll find me. I'm wrapped up in a bandana. Yeah, that's about it. I feel like this wasn't long enough. <laughs> no, this is great. We we got to all the main things I wanted to ask you. I got all my questions, my personal questions answered, and that's all that's important. 
Yeah. <laughs> but no, we'll have you back and do another one in the future. I should have mentioned if people are interested, live sound summit 2020.sounddesignlive.com is where you can go if you want to watch Nathan's entire presentation that he gave, which is really great. But we even ran out of time there. And you know, there's just always there's always more to talk about. So all we can do is like keep getting together and you know, uh, yeah. getting into more conversations. So thank you. Sound design. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. It features a track from an artist called Arulo. You can find more at mixkit.co. Sound Design Live is supported by Ross, Learn Stage Lighting, John Scott, Pedro Rob, Martin, Rody Free Radio, Joel Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Terry Nicholas, Kuba Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.